from Box Crusade presents Monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. I got this huge collection of movies that I always brag about, and that wasn't enough, so I went ahead and broke into the Long Box Crusade headquarters into their attic, and I'm taking all their movies, and it's all mine. <laughs> But enough about me. You aren't here about me. You're here about the movie we're going to watch this week and about my guest, because that's the best part about the show. And this time, I am so excited. I've got one of my favorite hosts from a podcast that I miss hearing, Smash Fiction. And I'm talking about Miles Schneiderman. But he also does not only Smash Fiction, he also does Next Wrestling. He does The Unspoiled Show. He also does some odyssey storytelling he does a whole bunch of stuff is that right miles yeah yeah i i definitely do a lot of things uh, i'm a self-employed freelance media producer which means uh, fundamentally that i'm poor but it also <laughs> means that i do many podcasts for for the people so yeah uh, smash fiction the next wrestling fan the odyssey storytelling podcast unspoiled uh, actually got some new so at least at least one new project uh, coming down the pike pretty soon here. So actually, as you listen to this, it's probably already uh, it's probably already out. So, uh, but we can talk about that more later <laughs> on. Uh, but yeah, it's good to be here, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Not a problem. I I know that we have talked about movies before. We I was able to get on Smash Fiction in a small way when we did a rundown of all of the MCU movies with. Uh, four other people? It was six people total? Uh, yeah, there were six of us total, because, you know, six Infinity Stones. So, yeah, no, we wanted to get you on Smash Fiction, and I think if Smash Fiction had continued, we would have. But, um, unfortunately, that show, uh, based on the mutual decisions of these six very, very tired hosts... Came to an end before it could get crappy because we didn't care anymore. No, I, I completely understand that. I know that just doing a bi-weekly show, what my friend and I do with our uh, Power Pack show, there are moments where like, we, we've got an end date for this and that end date's got now, <laughs> right? Okay, I, I yeah. So There were so many times when we like we were just like, why did we do weekly? Why did we make this decision? Why did we do this to ourselves? I, I do always appreciate my friend telling me early on in the process, we're doing this... Uh, twice a month, not every week, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's how we're going to do this. Yeah. All right, fine. And yeah, it every- was a wise decision. <laughs> Since uh, the end of Smash Fiction has happened, Megan Bob, who is another co-host of the show, and I have started doing our show, which is The Next Wrestling Fan, and then she and a bunch of the other people, I mean, pretty much everybody has been involved now in uh, Garden Plots with Skeletor, which is the other show that uh, has kind of spun off from Smash Fiction, and both of those are are, by, are, are twice a month uh, because we have learned our lesson. <laughs> Well, I, I could go on and talk to you about podcast yeah. and everything else forever, but that is not why you're here. You're here to see a movie. And as I, I promised am. you, I am going to give you that movie to watch. And this is a near and dear one to my heart. And it's one that surprised you haven't seen, but I know everybody else in the world has seen it. Oh, no. And I am talking about Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> That's right. So I, I need to know. I'm talking about 1994, directed by Frank Darabont. Starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. What do you know about this movie? I mean, I know that people love it, and uh, it's like at the top of a lot of lists. I think I've seen it at, at like number one in like best movie of all time lists. I think it's about a guy in prison, maybe? <laughs> I I really don't know anything, and I don't know why. Like, I it's not like I have anything against it, or like Tim Robbins, or, or anything. I just... I just missed it. And I think, what, it came out in 94? Yeah. Yeah, so, like, okay, so I was nine. Like, I'm not probably not the kind of, you know, not the age to watch Shawshank Redemption. I think I have, like, a vague memory of, like, my dad watching it, maybe? But, I, like, there's so many movies that I was too young to watch when they came out that I have seen, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know, I, I don't know why I, I never saw Shawshank. Well, I, I do know that when it came out, it was one of those sleeper hits of the time. It came out and it it didn't really succeed in the theaters. But then it was picked up very cheaply for TNT and TNT mm-hmm. started rotating it through and people were like, hey, this is a good movie. And it became one of okay. those movies that people would just turn on and watch and they it, it became comfort for them. So that's how a lot of people saw it. And then there, a lot of people realized this is just a well put together flick. So I, I can understand, though, I, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, well, I was really young when it first came out, so I just missed that initial bag- bandwagon. Yeah, I, I just, and like, we didn't have cable, so I never caught it on TNT, you know, and like, 
I get the vague impression that it's, like, sort of intense. Like, people kind of talk about it like it's a kind of big emotional experience yeah. uh, watching Shawshank. So that's that's encouraging to me because I like big emotional experiences. But, yeah, no, I just... Nobody ever was like, hey, you have to watch this. We're going to sit down and watch it right now, which is, like, what happened with, like... Like, that's how I saw From Dusk Till Dawn, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, like, but nobody ever did that with me for Shawshank. I don't know. Well, that's a good chance for me to sit down and say, you got to watch this. I am also interested, too, because I do know that you like Stephen King. I do like Stephen King. Or I should say, I should say, you have a relationship with Stephen King. I have a relationship (laughs) with Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Is this based on a King's thing? I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's based on a short story. Really? Oh, I had no idea. Uh, Yeah. So I am a, a big fan of some of Stephen King's early novels. I really like Carrie. I, I really love uh, Salem's Lot, one of my favorite books by him. And then I have also, you know, a, a relationship with The Dark Tower. I covered The Dark Tower in detail on the Unspoiled podcast. We So Natasha Winters, who is the host of Unspoiled, She's the host of all the Unspoiled shows, the numerous Unspoiled shows, the Unspoiled Network, which is all just her. And what she does is she finds somebody who's read the thing or watched the thing and somebody who hasn't. And then they go through it like episode by episode or chapter by chapter or something like that. And they really, you know, deep dive. So we did that with Dark Tower. And when we started, I had actually only read the first four books. And I was super into Dark Tower because I had only read the first four books. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And so, over the course of the show, I caught up. I had to catch up before we got there, right? Because I had to be the un- I had to be the spoiled right. one because she was the unspoiled one. And we're I was reading the books. So I was like, "Oh man, oh, this is not uh, this is not going in the direction I thought it would." <laughs> and so, uh, I I think that Dark Tower really shows off the best and the worst of Stephen King. I think that he is a brilliant writer who really has a, a tremendous ability to to set a tone, to present beautiful, like, intricate imagery that I don't think you would get from any other any other writer, really, and to really scare the crap out of you. Like, he, he can be terrifying. And mm-hmm. I've read his book about, like, you know, how he does that. Like, was it Dance Macabre, I think is the name of his book about horror writing, or one of his books about horror writing. Yeah, and he's just really good at it. And at the same time, he can be so incredibly self-indulgent and focus on details that nobody cares about and, like, and just, like, get really, really lock in on that doesn't that like I don't understand why anybody would care why you why you're focusing so much on this and and in Dark Tower like in Dark Tower you know I mean there's a whole long story about how that came to be but I just he totally loses sight of his characters and just completely goes off in this whole weird direction I think that Stephen King does work best where you take his idea of a story and you exploit that and and his his sketch of characters because i think he does do characters Mm. well and i think he does stories well and i think that if you take those elements and you put them into a movie or medium it really succeeds well it's when they try to become faithful to a book that's where you start getting a little "Mm." yeah yeah like i mean think about like what kubrick did with the shining and it's like it's so much better than a straight adaptation of that book would have been right and i and i think that's what what Shawshank Redemption really actually pulls off because it's based on a Stephen King short story, but they do more with it than that. So I I am fascinated to see what you think of this movie. I think that you will enjoy it. I hope you will enjoy it. But I hope so too. I think I will. <laughs> but before we get to hear what you think about it, we gotta let you watch it. So while you're watching it, we're gonna let our listeners hear the trailer from 1994's Shawshank Redemption. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back, one for each of your victims. So be it. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> You can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk, a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are 
places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, dear friend, you're putting me behind. Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not. You better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. You get busy dying. Get busy living. Or get busy dying. That's damn right. And we are back. Now, before we dive into this great movie, I want to take a moment to give those of you that have never seen this film a small synopsis about what it is about. In 1947, Andy Dufresne is sentenced to two consecutive life terms for the murder of his wife and her lover, a crime he swears he did not commit. He is sent to Shawshank State Penitentiary, where he meets and befriends Ellis Red Redding, the local inmate smuggler of contraband goods. Their friendship evolves over the course of two centuries as Andy is continuously faced with the horrors of life in prison, being punished for something he did not do. He deals with assault, violent guards, a corrupt prison system, and the loss of friends. Throughout all of the trials he faces, his spirit is never broken, and he inspires others to become more than they thought they would ever be. But even Andy has a breaking point, and after it is reached, what will be his reaction? So, Miles. Yes. You are one of the few people that I have ever met that have never <laughs> seen this film. And I am happy about this. I am exceedingly happy because you got to see it for the first time. And we get to get your reaction of that. So, please tell me, what was that first impression upon seeing this movie? I was just absolutely blown away. I mean, really, I was... I was shocked at how good it was. And I mean, 1994, like, it's not the most recent thing. A lot, not a lot of stuff from 1994 holds up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's 1994, right? Yeah, that, I'm not that getting that wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah, 94. A lot of stuff from that era. I mean, at this point, we're looking at, that's, that's 27 years ago. And for the film to be that good, I was invested. I, I wept. Several times over the course of the film, I'm not ashamed to say it. I was super into it. I thought it was beautiful. I loved it a lot, and I'm so happy. I can't believe I haven't seen it before. You've heard about this before. You have heard that it that that's yeah. this great movie that you should watch it. I'm assuming that you're kind of blown away by it meeting those expectations, right? Yeah, absolutely. I usually my reaction when people tell me, "Hey, this thing is so great, you should watch it," or like experience it or whatever. And they kind of tell me over and over again, my reaction tends to be to like get further away from it. I don't know why I'm just a contrary person in some ways. Um, but and so I think that's part of the reason why I never watched it. It's like, oh, my God, you have to watch Shawshank. You know, it's like, all right, well, I mean, do I really, though? And it turns out, yes, yes, I very much did. I don't recall if we talked about this in the intro or not, but I, I have like a vague memory of like seeing maybe a part of the end when I was younger. Like maybe my dad was watching it and I walked in the room or something. but like. So at the end, after he escapes and he mm-hmm. takes off the shirt, I was yeah. like, oh, he's about to do this. He's about to do the shirtless like opening of his arms and the, the camera is going to be like this. Like I knew that shot because it's been it's so iconic and it's been like referenced in so many other places. And so that was a really interesting experience. But it is rare that something lives up to the hype for me to the extent that this movie did. It, it blew the hype out of the water. I have a lot of specific questions about this movie and your reaction to it. Mm-hmm. But I want to start off with this. Did you know how the ending would come about? Did you guess how he was going to escape or that he was going to escape? No, I had no idea. I kind of had a vague sense that he was going to escape. Right before you find out he escaped, they do the kind of the bait and switch where it's like he mm. asks for the rope and, and they don't find him in the morning. And I was kind of like, I was going like, Wait a minute. I thought he escapes, right? Like, am I am I misremembering? Have I has my cultural osmosis not prepared me for the actual end of this movie? Is this a depressing movie? I didn't. And I was thinking about him going like, 
You know what? No, because movies narrated by Morgan Freeman don't end like this. It's just the fact <laughs> it's it's an immutable law of cinema history. If you've got Morgan Freeman narrating it and it's got this kind of hopeful, like folksy, friendly tone throughout, it's not going to end with the guy killing himself. So, um, but I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea like how he was going to pull this off. I wasn't even thinking as the movie progressed. I was so involved. I wasn't even thinking about what he might be doing with that hammer that we might not have known about, you know? That's that's fascinating because even though you knew that, there still is the little bit of, and, and even re-watching it for myself, there still is that little bit of a hook that grabs you and says, we're setting this up for this guy to have a sticky end. We've already shown you Albert Brooks, Brooksy, yeah. hanging himself. We've already set up that this is a place that kills hope. And it looks like they have beaten the hope out of him finally at mm-hmm. last. And yeah. he's got nothing left to live for. And so even though you were like, well, you know, Morgan Freeman, now this isn't this is not going to be a sad movie. There's no way everybody's prepared me for this and not I haven't heard that's a sad movie. Right. But still you were it sounds like you were still brought in just enough. Oh, absolutely. I was I was like I, in that in that moment I was like he's not dead, right? It's so all I, <laughs> I was watching it with my wife and I was kind of like talking to like like he's seen actually like it's not that kind of movie, right? Right? You know. <laughs> so the other thing is you said that I thought was very interesting was there's a couple times you cried in this and this is yeah. a very powerful movie. So let's let's dive into a couple of those scenes to start with if you don't mind because those all. scenes that that get you. What were some of the scenes that really touched you emotionally about this movie? My mind immediately goes to the end, the final scene of of Freeman walking up to the boat. Just because I appreciated that that was the last scene, I kind of thought as we were getting there that like the way the narration was going, that the movie was going to cut out with Red heading down to the border. And like like he was there was some line that was like an old man off in search of adventure or something like mm-hmm. that. It wasn't like that. But like and I'm like, all right, well, that's a good closing line. Like we're fading the black here. Right. And it's like, no, we're actually showing him like he makes it there and they meet up. And I love that. That was a big moment for me. I'm trying to remember. I felt like there was a. I felt like there was, there was definitely like a couple others in the movie. And as we talk about the scenes, I'm sure I'll, I'll remember them more. What's fascinating about the one scene that you mentioned? I was doing a little bit of research on it, and apparently that last scene was something that they came back and shot later. They did a test screening with the audience, and they didn't. They either didn't have it in there, or mm-hmm. it was something that the studio wanted to have. They wanted to have that happy ending yeah. in there, and so they put that in there. And it does tie the film together so well, especially after having so much of the movie be in this dull, gray prison with all these muted colors. And then you're left with this bright blue of the ocean. Yeah. And just, and it just, it releases you back into the world. You're gone. You have escaped from Shawshank as well as they have escaped from Shawshank. And so I help, I think it helps to sell that final, that final release for you. And and I can see, I mean, it still gets me as emotions and yeah. it's nice to hear that from you as well. It's a real, there's a real catharsis to it where it's like, okay, we can relax. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this is the thing happened. The ending happened. It was good. It was happy. Great. You know what I mean? Where sometimes mm-hmm. a movie kind of like leaves you with the lingering hope that it might be happy, which is fine. I like that too. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's a really nice kind of ending. But I think a movie like this is so emotionally affecting that it works better to just give you, you know, just just give give me the cookie. At the end of the yeah. movie, I sat, I sat through your film about how terrible the prison system is. Give me my cookie. Uh, okay, let's let's start going through a few of the other scenes, and and let's start with some of the characters. Let's yeah. let's start with Morgan Freeman, the voice of God in this movie. Sure. Let's talk about him and about his character Red and about his portrayal. You, you said that you know. Morgan Freeman narrating a movie is is always something special. It's always going to, you know where it's going to lead. This is early on in Morgan Freeman being as big as he ended up right, being. But sure. what, what what did you think of his character? What did you think of his role in this movie? I thought he was wonderful as a, as a performer, of course. One thing I'll say is that the last scene where he's talking, not the last scene, but the scene where he's talking to the new warden mm-hmm. and where he finally like stops trying to get paroled and putting on the and giving the performance that he thinks will get him released and instead tells the truth. That scene is incredible. And I think that what he's conveying in that moment where it's like, yeah, I made a mistake. I did a bad thing. And because I did that one bad thing, I have been in this 
hellhole for decades. Let's not sit here and pretend that any of this is about rehabilitation or about mm-hmm. justice or about anything. Cause I, because I have more than paid yeah. for, for this mistake. And, and y'all let me out if you're going to let me out, but you're not going to let me out because I've somehow done my time or learned my lesson. That's not how this works. The way his friendship with Andy grows, I thought was, was really interesting at the beginning, he's kind of the smartest guy in town. Like he's the guy mm-hmm. that is, is is running all the bets and getting all the stuff, and everybody kind of looks up to. Mm-hmm. Andy doesn't exactly have his doesn't exactly take that like alpha role or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like doesn't doesn't take the the role of like I am in charge here in terms of like in charge among the inmates or whatever that I think Red kind of does. But he is clearly like the guy like uh oh we sent a, we sent a hot shot banker or whatever into prison what's <laughs> gonna happen now like he's doing things that nobody else is even could even conceive of right. so in that and, and then from there you get kind of red's character transitioning into a sort of sidekicky sort of like oh my gosh and you can't do that kind of thing and you know he's got a lot of devotion to him i think that i think that as a story of friendship it's really beautiful i'm sure that there are people who uh, have a different perspective on on these issues than me? That might have some, might have a few issues with with the with the, the black character in that role. I, I'm I'm not gonna make that argument because I don't feel like I'm qualified to make that argument. But I do I could see it. I saw them being a lot of equals. I, I think that Andy was never a leader. He was a smart man there, but he didn't. He had no people skills, none whatsoever. No, and and he would not have survived if he hadn't become friends with Red. That's true. I think becoming friends with Red and Red accepting him exactly who he was. Right. And Red never used him. He just he, as he said, I liked him. He yeah. just liked him. He found that this was somebody that he could see as a bit of a peer. Red was an intelligent man, not as intelligent as Andy, but he had enough street intelligence and people skills that those are the the things that Andy lacked. Mm-hmm. And so they really complemented each other a lot. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and and the thing that Andy provided to Red was hope. <laughs> yes, which is the theme of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Really noticed this time through that the thing that I think really helps this film. There's a lot of pieces that just work and click and make this film a great whole. But just trying to imagine this film without Morgan Freeman's voice as the narrator. And it's just, I, I can't fathom it. I think there's a lot of other things you could probably take out, move, replace. But his voice narrating and booming through and providing that gravitas for and the seriousness of the situation and the poetry of the situation, I think it's just that's what helps sell this film. Yeah, and I think this, it's funny, I went into this, as I mentioned, with like, okay, this is a movie narrated by Morgan Freeman. But what what it really is, is this is the movie narrated by Morgan Freeman. And everything that came after this was, I I feel like, was kind of trying to recapture the magic a little bit. Because it's like, Mm -hmm. because what what he brings to the film is so powerful. I also don't know that that you get the same movie without Tim Robbins. Like, yeah, there's a lot of, I was looking it up and there's a lot of casting what ifs, so to speak in that role. I'm not going to say no to the alternate universe where Nicolas Cage played Andy. I would have loved to watch that movie. (laughs) It's not the same movie, but I would have watched it. (laughs) You know, I'm not super familiar with Tim Robbins as an actor. So it was really like, I've seen a couple of those things, but it was another kind of thing. Like Tim Robbins almost, felt like the movie to me in that oh oh tim robbins oh this is what i'm mm-hmm. about like this actor this performance let's dive into tim robbins because yeah. it's strange because he is the main character of this film but there's so much other parts to this film even though it's fo- focused on him that you tend to forget that he's the main character sometimes even right. though the film's all about him right tall shy smarter than everybody in the room but you know, absolutely innocent of being here. He doesn't deserve to be here. But it's hard to feel sorry for him until the film has to progress to a certain point where you can start feeling sorry for him because he is so cold. It's a fascinating performance. But what do you think about... I mean, you, I think you kind of hit, tipped your hat that this is just kind of amazing performance by him. But you want to talk more about that? Yeah. You know, I think, the, I, think I read the first choice for Andy was Tom Cruise. 
And I just, I can't see that at all. Hmm. And I think it's just because, like, he's too good looking. He's too movie star. Tim Robbins has this look to him. Like, for, uh, his acting ability obviously is off the charts, but his appearance, his, his look, the way that he's sort of dressed up and portrayed in the film really does give the impression of, like, he's just a guy. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who, as it happens, was a little bit higher up than some of us. He's, like I said, hotshot banker, right? And he knows all these financial tricks because it was his job. But, you know, he got here because his wife was cheating on him and he is able to survive essentially because people like him and because he is able to sort of, and and because he's intelligent, he's smart and, Mm -hmm. and he's got this, he's got this charisma to him where he seems cold at first, but it's really just because he's shell shocked. He's in this scenario that, you know, you could never really, that's not his, his kind of status quo. I found it really interesting that we don't ever see happy, smiling, regular Andy before he's set, sent to Shawshank. You know, the movie okay. opens with kind of him talking to the judge. And, you know, we see the scene where he's like drunk, like outside the, the house where his wife and her lover are uh, cavorting together. <laughs> but you never really see him happy until the end. And right. it's such a weirdly transformative moment because the this entire movie... Even the moments where he's not like miserable, like there's that scene in the library where he's breaking down to red everything that like mm-hmm. uh, the paper trail is not going to lead back to me. I'm going to make this guy a bunch of money, all this stuff. I'm going to get my library all, you know, like he's not miserable, but this is still not like who he is at his best. Right. Cause he's right. still in prison for a crime. He didn't commit. And he's going to be there probably the rest of his life. There's some joking moments where he kind of laughs with the guys. That's one thing. Yeah. You've got that small smirk that he's got when they're drinking beer on top of the roof together. Yeah. That that's about that. That's like the half happiness. And then you're right. You don't see him actually happy until the end of the film. He's got this feeling throughout the film. Like he's got a secret, right? Like he knows something about this entire situation that nobody else knows. And of course he's right. His secret is that he's planning an escape route, but he's actually the, the reason that works. And I think the reason that the reason that you get sucked into the narrative, the way that you do so that you're not thinking of thinking about whether or not he has an escape route is that his other secret is that he has like little strategies for making things just a little bit less terrible. The moment yeah. with the beer where he's got that smirk on his face and, and the thing he does with the library, we're just like sending letters over and over again. He is chipping away at the wall, like mm-hmm. literally chipping away at the wall piece by piece. But that's also happening metaphorically. He's also just like getting, creating these little spaces where things are a little bit more okay. And that's mm-hmm. where the hope comes from because that those spaces are where you find that hope. And I just, I think he absolutely nails that aspect of the performance. And and I was wrong. There was one other time, and I don't think it's happiness, but it's contentment. And that's when he is playing the opera on the loudspeakers. Oh man! And he's just sitting there and just enjoying it. And and the scene with him and just all of the prisoners looking up, just quietly listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> opera. Yeah, it's incredible. He's able to embody that like that dual, the the the, the twin secret sort of the metaphorical one and the literal one, mm-hmm. and. Just the way he carries himself and the way he, he reads his lines, the, the, the way he, his face moves, like just everything about what he does in the film conveys that like, I'm not tipping my hand because I don't want to get in trouble, but things aren't quite as bad as they could, as, as they seem. There is like a spark of light. You can't have anybody that's going to go in there and be turning things up to 11. You need somebody who's yeah. got the ability. You got somebody who has to have the ability to go up to let's say about an eight or seven or an eight, but they're told you need to be able to show that you can go up there, but you need to dial it way down to like a three. Right. And, and walk through the film holding that line of there's a secret, but I'm not going to be broadcasting it. It's just going to be just enough that mm-hmm. it's going to, that it's going to make people think about me, but I can, but he's got the quiet serenity as well. The moments when he's being pushed to his limit, you know, like <laughs> when he's, when he confronts, the warden about Tommy's like testimony or whatever, when he, that like that whole scene where mm-hmm. he realizes that, that the warden is kind of turning on him. All the moments 
of like incredibly strong emotion, another actor would, like you said, go to 11. Like, I, yeah. like Nicolas Cage, I, I probably Cruz too, I, I think, yeah. would go like voice raised, lots of body movement. At, this is the point in the movie where the performance kind of crescendos and they can mm. really get into it with everything they've got. And Robbins is able to make you understand how emotional the moment is, but he's still being quiet. He's yeah. still being reserved because that's who he is. And that's his survival strategy is he doesn't rock the boat, right? He doesn't upset people because he's playing this long game. Yeah. Uh, like I said, in a couple different ways, I found that so impressive that he was able to do, to do that, to convey such strong feelings while never like fully indulging in that entire array of like emotional techniques, you know, emotional acting. I'm always just impressed with it, with what he can perform and how he can present that. Cause he does, he, he's a big guy and you know, I've never met you in person. You know, I'm about six feet. I'm, I'm a bigger kind sure, of heavier yeah. guy. And, and I forget myself sometimes and people are like, you kind of are intimidating mm-hmm. and like, okay, well, and I'm also kind of loud too. So trying right. to being able to be cognizant of the size and intimidation factor and dialing it in, dialing it in, dialing it in and not expressing yourself and, and not and making sure that the rage never gets out to cause people harm. He is a timid, timid soul, which once again, he is not the type of person who would be do well in a prison. Right. Uh, even though he is a bigger guy. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to Freeman for a second, it's interesting mm-hmm. because the contrast in their characters, you know, red is the exact opposite. Red is the only person in the prison willing to admit that he's guilty of the crime he committed right mm-hmm. they hammer that home a couple of times so like so he is red as cards on the table i can get you whatever you need i'm here i'm me there's nothing what you see is what you get and his performance you know and every time he's like kind of blown away by andy or or somehow shocked by what's happening in the prison around him he's just very open and honest about everything which again plays into he should be that it's important mm-hmm. for him to be that. And in the end, being open and honest is what gets him released. Whereas trying to put on this little try, trying to do what he thinks he's supposed to do for the, 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 the guards or whatever, the warden just gets him sent back into the prison for another 10 years. or however yep. long. It's a really interesting contrast. I think that, that the two characters in, in that way are very, um, you know, very, uh, uh, I mean, I guess I already said the word contrast, but yeah, they're, 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 they contrast. They are they co- they complement one another. That's they what I'm complement each other. Yes, they, they work well together, and, and they provide. And yet, at the same time, you can definitely see these people being friends. Oh, I mean, yeah. they're they're not so much opposite that that you would have a hard time with it. And they're friendly with each other. They're friends with each other. Yeah, they work well together. Unlike the other, I mean, there's a lot of good stars in this film. There are a mm. lot of good stars in this film. But I mean, we have to talk about Clancy Brown. We have to talk about Clancy Brown. How could you not talk about Clancy Brown? I love him so much. I do too. I'm a big, big, <laughs> big, big fan of his. And here he is just being the epitome of a prison guard. Yeah. And yet at the same time, he's bringing something different to it as well. And, and I don't know what it is because there's nothing there's nothing lovable about the guy at all, except that it's kind of get almost that feeling you get from watching Arthur Emery play the drill sergeant in Full Metal oh, Jacket. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just like here is somebody presenting the character of everything you expect to see, and he's doing it to the perfect degree. He's a person who clearly doesn't have morals. And I think what's interesting about that is that he's in an environment that allows him to thrive because he doesn't have more. He is in charge. He is kind of able to do his whole thing because he will do anything. He will do mm-hmm. whatever. Like, like he, I mean, the first Andy's first night there, he kills a guy, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he just straight up kills a guy. And I think it's fascinating. The contrast between him and, uh, and Boggs, um, mm-hmm. who also has no morals and who also, is a, a terrible, terrible, terrible person. But in the end, he's still just a prisoner. In the yeah. end, when he gets on the bad side, like here are two people who are united in their complete lack for anything resembling a moral compass. And but but guess what? 
One of them's a guard and another one's a prisoner. The prisoner's the one who gets who gets beaten up and sent off. I was struggling here listening to you say that because I never thought about Hadley, the character of the prison guard Hadley, oh, not yeah. having not having morals because I always kind of thought of about he's got morals. It's just that they are not our morals. He has a he has a direction on his compass. It's just mm-hmm. very, very strongly, I'm right, you're wrong, this is my job, and I'm gonna do my job the meanest way I know how. Okay. Because because I was wrong, I was wrong. We do we do cheer for uh, Hadley when he does beat up horribly Boggs, when yeah. he just destroys him, and we're kind of like, yes, this is the justice that we want to see. But then you think about the reasoning behind it. <laughs> Does Hadley care about Tim Robbins' character? Does he care about Andy Dufresne? Maybe a little bit, but I think he more sees him as, here is somebody who has done a good deed towards me and who I can see as being a useful tool, and here's somebody that's injuring my tool, and that's not going to happen on my watch. So, yeah. In that moment, I I wasn't really cheering it. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I I was kind of like, here you are abusing your authority again, (laughs) you awful (laughs) person. yes. And a lot of the members of the prison warm up to Andy over the course of the, mm-hmm. the movie as well. Like Andy becomes friends with pretty much everybody. Hadley and uh, and then the warden are kind of the two who really don't, even though the warden puts on a good show of it. I think they I think they both become friendly with him, but they see him as a as a means to an end. Yes, as opposed to genuine genuinely yes. having like feelings of friendship toward him. So. I guess I I don't I didn't get a huge sense that Hadley like believes in law and order that he believes in the rules he's enforcing. He believes in order. He believes in his order. Well, yeah, he he like like many people who are drawn to these types of professions mm-hmm. to wield power. In this case, the power he's able to wield is state-sanctioned violence, and so you know, and 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 Brown, you know, look, there's a reason that Clancy Brown is always have to play villains, man. Like, he's <laughs> Play are very strong, strong-willed characters. Yeah, uh, I think it's Starship Troopers, but yeah, yeah, he 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 plays these for oh, a reason. Yeah. Speaking of Arlie Ermey, that is him in Starship Troopers playing uh, the Arlie Ermey uh, analog in that movie. <laughs> Clancy Brown is good at these roles, and apparently he's just a nice guy, and he would have to be. I mean, but he is. He's got the look, and he's got the way of presenting himself that he just comes across as frightening. And that's what you want in this character. You mentioned the warden. We should talk about the warden yeah. because he is he is also the the other big one uh, that that's here, and that's Samuel Norton. He was played by Bob Gunton, and he is the very sadistic and also very mixed message sending warden of this yeah. uh, prison because you know he believes in God, but. Wow, his morals are skewed a special kind of way. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's for sure. I knew Bob Gunton from the 1996 action film Broken Arrow. Uh huh. Which is probably my favorite action movie, even though it's terrible and I don't like action movies. So <laughs> <laughs> I I have a thing about Broken Arrow. I don't know why, but Bob Gunton plays like the John Travolta's like financier who he kills like halfway through the film. Good on you there, Bob. Uh, yeah, Norton is, I mean, he's the evil prison warden. Like, mm-hmm. uh, not not every part of this movie deals with Shades and shades of Grey, and that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I appreciate it, is that there is no point in the film where there's any kind of, like, nod to, like, well, maybe the prison system is okay. Maybe these guys deserve this. You know, it's like, no, nobody here deserves this. And it's not gonna stop just because... This guy got replaced, which I think probably the film, if I was making the film, I would have hammered that home a little bit more clearly. But <laughs> but I think he's not unique or special. I think he's just <laughs> like, he, again, he's a dude. He is a he is a warden. He's a Christian. He's a God fearing man. And he's embezzling a bunch of money. <laughs> you right. know? There's no subtlety with this at all. I mean, the nice thing about the setting where this film takes place and putting in the characters of the warden and the head prison guard is that they can shorthand a lot of stuff and we don't need to spend a lot of time figuring out what's their motives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, mortar, the, the motive for Hadley is there is order in the world because I am the head prison guard and this is my order. Mm-hmm. And the motivation for Norton is I believe in God. I'm the head of this prison and this prison will do what I want. Right. And, and that's it. Okay, great. We can look at 
what this film is really about, and that's about hope. <laughs> yeah. And that's about the, the, the actual prisoners in the film and the, the, the stories that they go through. So the beginning of the movie, you've got the, the very famous, I don't know the exact quote because I know it's been bastardized, uh, but the, the version I know it is like, you, you, your soul might belong to Jesus, but your ass belongs to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I, I, like I said, that's not exactly what he said, but it's it's the, yeah. the source of that, of that famous um, aphorism. You've got that, and he, again, the whole Bible thing. And then the end, you've got Andy revealing that he hid the, the rock hammer in the Bible, and uh-huh. he's got the note to the warden that says, you were right, salvation lay within. And of course, it's in the Exodus chapter. Of course, but absolutely. <laughs> I think you could easily read that as sort of a refutation of Christianity, but I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's more accurate to read it as, I don't know what this Norton guy was doing, but it wasn't being a Christian. <laughs> no. I mean, we, we won't go too far down the religious hole on That's this fine. one here, but I, I think that it's easy to say that... The film posits that the people who are who do have goodwill to their fellow man and who are more Christian in their actual actions, you would mm-hmm. see that Andy and Red and a few of the other prisoners too, just in the way they care for each other and they try to talk to each other and that they try are and they're helping each other get through the situation. Yeah. They are portraying more Christian attitudes. And they aren't sitting there saying that I am a Christian, I am a Christian. When you have people that come out and say, I am a Christian, I'm a Christian, you look at them and say, okay, you're saying that an awful lot, but what are you really doing? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me just getting back. I'm I'm going back to this again, but Mm -hmm. like, it's fascinating to me how, you know, like what is it like a third of the way through the movie, I think is when Boggs gets sent off and his boys stop, stop uh, sexually assaulting Andy. And like, after that point, there are no bad prisoners. Yeah. Like there are no prisoners who are not like protagonists after that point or sympathetic. You hear about them in the background. There's a few mentions of these people are still around, that there is, that there are still tough things that occur. Sure. But, but you aren't seeing it because once again, it's almost not what that is about. What, what the film is about. You know that it's bad there. You know that those people are still around. You know that, you know, it's not always over. There are still some bad things that happen. Yeah. You, 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 even Andy says that, you know, he spent other times in the hole besides one time when he played the records for the war. And so there are other things that are occurring. There's a lot of time that's going being compressed here. Absolutely. But I just find it interesting that, like, it is mentioned that, like, yeah, there's still bad things that happen. It's a prison. Obviously, there's still yeah. bad things that happen. But... After that, after the thing with Boggs happens, that kind of goes away as, as an idea that the film is interested in exploring. So I just thought that was really, I appreciate that. I appreciate that at a certain point, the movie's like, okay, we have acknowledged that prisons have bad people in them and they do bad things in them. That's not what we're talking about here. Nope. <laughs> what we're talking about is that the people who have been convicted of crimes are not as bad as the people who are imprisoning them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I just thought that was really interesting. And I think, I think that, you know, just, just making Nancy Brown's character and, uh, and Bob Gilton's character just completely like repellent and unsympathetic in any way <laughs> is a, uh, is a choice. What scenes or what parts of the film did you really have a problem with? I mean, it, was there anything that stuck out at you as a very unneeded, unnecessary or something that hasn't aged at all? Well, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is Andy's first night when the guy gets killed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all talking about how fat he is, you know, and it's like, and which, which doesn't age great. And probably the movie would have been fine without that bit entirely. Like, I don't think we need Clancy Brown just like murdering a guy on his first night there to drive it home that he's in prison and it's bad. That was, that was a little extreme. Uh, I'd probably do without that. There's a couple of moments here and there that like my modern 2021 sensibilities briefly recoiled from. Like at the end when Hadley's being taken away and Freeman's like, I hear he screamed like a little girl. It's like, okay, like <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let that go. Cause it was 94. <laughs> Not only 94, but we're also talking, you know, mid forties, mid fifties. Uh, so I mean, true. Yeah. yeah in terms I, of when it's set. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have to always respect that there is a language. There was things not saying it's not giving it the excuse that it was right, mm. but there are some things that are said back then that it helps place it and helps remind us of the time period, even if it is not acceptable nowadays, too. I'll say one more thing in that regard, too. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about this one. I'm just kind of workshopping it now as we as we talk about this. Did the movie need the whole thing with Tommy? It's an interesting point because Tommy is kind of, he's a fascinating character. He's a great character that comes in. It helps advance the film along a little bit to show that, you know, we're in the 1960s. It's a little bit more rock and roll. You know, right, these, they're right, older right. men. They're older men at that point in time. But he's he comes in as a real guest star that gets killed. <laughs> right. Um, but he, but he, brings in something very important and he and that entire situation and that entire scene does propel Tim Robbins to finally act to finally make that decision of I am going to escape I you yeah. know this is the last thing that I needed to just just move on and get out of here it serves a role in the plot for sure that apparently the original plan for who was playing Tommy was Brad Pitt which I would have really liked to see hmm. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think I needed you know like I, t- I talked about how I really wanted that last scene. How even though mm-hmm. some movies may not have made that choice, I'm glad this movie did. I don't know that I totally needed the explicit confirmation that he was innocent. Yeah. Because the movie never really gave you that. That's an interesting point. Every time Andy said, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I didn't do it. And everybody's like, yeah, no, neither did I. <laughs> gotcha. You know, and he doesn't really... He doesn't really take it past there. He's just like, yeah, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all innocent here. Ha ha. And so I think there's enough there that you can infer that he probably is. But I think I would have liked the movie better if it had left that question unanswered and made the point that it doesn't actually matter if he's innocent or not. That's an interesting, interesting thought. And I've never, I never considered that before. I think for me personally, I think it's, it's less that. It's less the fact that he's innocent and that it doesn't really matter if he's guilty or innocent. It's just that this is a horrible place. Nobody mm-hmm. should be in there. I think it it helps sell the fact that, you know, his last line of, you know, I've served my time for whatever crimes I may have possibly committed in my life. Yeah. I have served those plus more because he's been put in there for something he never did. And now it's a proven fact. I think it helps with just showing, especially at that moment when he, when it looks like he's going to kill himself of just, he was innocent. He had an opportunity to get out with this right. and it was taken from him. And I think it helps, it, it helps show that, that that knife is in there twisting a little bit more. And then at the other end, when he gets free, it shows and he won, and he right. beat the system, and he got out. So I, I don't know. For me, I think that it, that helps add to that moment instead of, but but I can definitely see yeah. where you're coming from. I can definitely see that too. It's not necessarily a better movie if that's not mm-hmm. there, but it's it might be just my preferred version of it because I because I do appreciate the theme of like I this was unjustly done to me. The, mm-hmm. the system said it it that it was was right. And I beat it. Like, I, I get that. that. That makes a lot of sense. I think for me, you know, when he says at the end, like, I've, for, I've, I've done my time plus more for any crimes I may have committed. Like, I guess I just feel like if he had killed his wife and her lover mm-hmm. in a crime of passion, he still would have done that. Like, that still would have applied. I, I really do feel like you don't send somebody for the rest of their lives into a situation where it's just absolutely terrible, where there's no chance of mm-hmm. where, where you're just treated like you're not a person, just this completely dehumanizing, horrible. I'm trying really hard not to swear right now, you know, <laughs> but like, no, no, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. And you're completely right. You're completely right on that too. So yeah, so that's that's just. I felt like if if it had done that, it would have been it kind of made that point. Maybe you find some other reason for Andy to hit that breaking point. But I do think that you obviously it works in terms of the plot, like this yeah. kid getting killed and and definitely hammers home. Like we now have, I guess what I'm advocating here is is sort of taking out the the gratuitous <laughs> murders on behalf of Clancy Brown and Bob Gunton. I'm like, no, you know the the places where the villains do something really villainous, we should take those out. But I think. <laughs> I think for me, it's just like the prison is the villain. You know what I mean? Like the prison system is the villain. So maybe we don't need. But I understand that for like a regular viewer, maybe it's good to have the have the, the bad guys actually do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, those are the two of the, the, the real scenes where you see them being. Hor- well, I don't know that the scene where 
Andy confronts the warden and says, how can you be so obtuse? We do yeah. see how evil he is there, too. Yeah. But let, let's get off the negative. Let, let's wrap this up with some positive. What other scenes you, you were trying to remember from before? You know, some other scenes that really emotionally touched you. Was there any other scenes that were just amazing that you just absolutely loved that just really sang out to you and, and you just keep replaying in your head? The whole movie works so well, like as a whole. Definitely the the sequence with Brooks is absolutely heartbreaking. I think I love that the movie, you know, directly deals with the fact that it's like, okay, you're free. Go, go do something, I guess. And it's like, cool, great. And like the whole thing was like wishing you were back in the prison because you know who you are. They're like, it's just, it's, I, I definitely like was crying during that bit. So um, that, that was extremely affecting. On a more positive later note, I'm a sucker for a heist. Uh-huh. So, and, and you know how every heist movie has the bit at the end where it's like, and here's how they did it. Let's go back. You know what I mean? Yep. So I love that the, sort of his escape took on that role where it's like, okay, he was using the hammer to do this and he covered up the hole behind the Rita Hayworth picture and, and he used to carry the gravel into his pa- into the yard and drop it through his pants and, you know, and all this stuff. And as it happens, while he was making these people all this money, because like I'm going throughout the movie, I'm like, he's got that scene that we mentioned before in the library where he's telling red about all the money he's making for Norton. He's got the kind of smile on his face the whole time he's doing it. And you know, red's kind of got like, why are you doing this for this guy? Like I get, mm-hmm. he's like, I get that he's making your stay here a little bit cushier, but like, really you're helping out this piece of garbage. And he's like, yeah, actually guess what? Now that I, <laughs> now I can, I can go collect all the money that he's been embezzling because I know how I did it. And I built in these loopholes. Even like little details, like taking the suit, you know, so you can go into the bank and get the money. Like that's, it's just so good. I'm, I, I love the heist explainer scene. And, and uh, this was a really good one. And how much did it just shock you when the warden's pelting everybody with the, the rock pieces, the, the, yeah. the sanded rock pieces. And then he throws the, the piece at the picture yeah. and you hear the tink, 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 tink. Yep. Yep. Was that a surprise for you? Was yeah, that a surprise? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I had, I had never, my wife is more the person who, uh, can figure out where the movie's going midway through. I tend to be mm-hmm. more, as long as the movie's good and not like too formulaic, I tend to get, get a little bit more swept up in it. And I'm not thinking that far ahead. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. thinking right here at the moment. So when that happened, I was like, Oh man. Oh, <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, get me Rita Hayworth. I love it. <laughs> it's like, he's this, this planning stages, you, like, like everything. Mm-hmm. He's just like, I'm just going to, this is what I'm going to do with my time here. And I guess I'll get out someday. Who knows? I've got a lot of time to try. Yeah, I am right there with you. That entire end scene where it's putting together. These are all the pieces that he did. This is how he escaped. And, and once again, getting into the idea of what he had to go through, not only his entire time there, but that last night, what he had to do to escape mm-hmm. and what he was willing to do to escape, go through the sewage system yeah, and, and just, you know, all of that. But then the reward that he gets, and I had to look this up again, uh, $370,000, which today's standards is $2.95 million. Wow. That's good to know. <laughs> That's I really mean, good to know. Yeah, he came out with a lot of pocket change. So you know, you're just you're you're screaming with joy at the end of of what he did and what he accomplished, and it's just wonderful to see. So it's always great when when it's like, okay, here's how I got the one up on you. You know what I mean? Um, especially in a movie like this, where you kind of have a feeling that like you kind of have a feeling that it's going to happen at some point, but you're but. As things get worse and worse, you're like, yeah, is it? And there it's like, it's great. Yeah. How's it going to happen? How's it going to work? I talked about how the Tommy stuff could have been removed from the film. I do mm-hmm. want to say the the bit where we find out that he passed his test was really sweet. And I love yes. that moment. I kind of thought when Tommy was being brought in, like when they're like, and then Tommy came in, in the late 60s, Tommy came mm-hmm. in from another prison. And I'm like, oh, this guy is going to be like, this is the point in the movie where the guy comes in, he throws a wrench in the gears. You know what I mean? Where the guy comes in and he's terrible and he makes everybody. And I was really prepared to, to hate this guy. And so I was really surprised when it was like uh, pleasantly surprised when it was like, no, he's just like a nice guy who wants to, you know, who wants to, to, to learn how to read. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, he comes, he comes in and like, 
he's the new guy in the crew. He's the new, because you know that the crew is always going to be changing. They've always got more people are in the clique. You have to kind of, it's a gang. They are in a gang in prison. Mm-hmm. Red Red is the leader, and then it's Red. And Andy's his kind of lieutenant, but they are a gang. Yeah. And so you, you got new people that are coming in the gang, and this is the new kid that comes in. And yeah, the, teaching him how to read. This is his new project. This is Andy's new project. And yes, it's quite enjoyable. Quite enjoyable. I have a guess. I have a guess about what's going to happen next, but you know what? I, I don't have a big poster of Rita Hayworth or <laughs> or anybody else on my wall that, that's covering up a secret, so we're going to just come find out. We want to rate this film. We want to find out how wonderful you thought, thought this film was. We rate it on a 1 to 5 scale. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this film? 1 to 5. Uh, I'm, I'm going full 5 and there's some overflowing off the top, baby. Like, oh, it's... I- yeah, it's, uh, there, there was butter dripping down that bag and onto my hands. That is how much I love this movie. Uh, I, I am. This movie made me want to break into a prison office and and uh, play opera to everybody. Everybody in the prison, like it's one of those films that really it's dark, but it's beautiful and it's inspiring. I've talked a lot in the past in the past couple of years about this concept of hope punk that I've um, been kind of exploring uh, in the past few years after discovering the term and, and what it means um, as it used by its inventor, Alexandra Rowland, who's a fantasy author and, and podcaster. Incidentally, she's excellent. Or I'm sorry. They're excellent. This idea that even if everything's ho- hopeless, even if everything seems hopeless and you want to despair, like this idea that the world is unfair and terrible in a lot of ways and that bad things will happen and people will betray you the system will betray you everything you ever believed in will turn out to be not true and your life will crumble in your hands but you just gotta keep fighting you have to because the fight is the point if you don't keep fighting then who are you what what are you even doing calling yourself a human being if you just give up and you don't keep fighting and so that's, to me, I got a lot of Hope Punk vibes from this film. That alone would have been enough to, to make me happy. But between the, the acting, the script, the, the wonderful moments, the emotion, the fact that it was directed by the guy who made uh, the Dream Warriors Nightmare on Elm Street movie, uh, you know, just everything <laughs> about it uh, makes, me, makes me really thrilled. So, uh, yeah, absolutely five out of five. Yeah, this is a five for five out for me as well. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a movie that for me and for a lot of people I know, it was on in heavy rotation on like TNT or something. And just was one of those films that you could like turn on, it would be on, and you could just sit down and start watching it at any point in time. And it was like, it was like slipping yourself into a warm bath. It's like you just, you know, after you've watched it one time, you know what's coming, you know what's going on, and you're just in this movie that's that's dark and depressing, but at the same time, there's this hope undercurrent that's going through it, and then you just feels good it's a very rewatchable film it's a wonderful story and the acting the cinematography the setting yeah. itself is just fantastic and everything in this movie works 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 there's there is no fat in the movie everything's got a purpose and it, it just it, it's like watching a perfect orchestra how it moves yeah, I agree. Reaching for things to cut out of it aside, I think that um, I think the movie is extraordinarily well paced and really like just just is kind of the perfect version of itself in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I I really appreciate this. Like I said, I I'm very happy to find somebody who has not seen it so we can yeah. talk about the movie because it's something that everybody loves and I know everybody's going to be just they're like yes, 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 but. We have we have waxed poetic enough about it. I would like to give you a chance to wax poetic about where people can find you and listen to you talk about other things that are not prison movies. <laughs> <laughs> the the first and foremost place you can find me at the moment is uh, over on one of my other podcasts. My, my, my other kind of main podcast right now It's called The Next Wrestling Fan, and that's spelled the NXT Wrestling Fan. And the reason it's spelled that way is because it is a show where myself and my co-host, Megan Bob, watch old episodes of the wrestling show NXT, which is my favorite wrestling show, and I am a huge wrestling fan. We watch them, and basically, in the process of watching them, we treat it like a review show, 
with our own format. So we move sequentially through the episodes as they go forward into the future. In the process, we teach both Bob and our listeners about wrestling, about how wrestling should be watched, about what it is and how it works. You know, it's like there's so many like YouTube videos and explainers and books and stuff like that, where it's, this is why wrestling is interesting. This is why you should watch wrestling. And I've imagined being somebody who doesn't know about wrestling, like watching one of those videos going like, oh, this is cool. I'll turn on the wrestling show and just have no idea what I'm looking at. And I've tried to sell wrestling to enough people that I know how much help you need. (laughs) to really understand the world, especially because there's no good entry point. It's not like there's an episode one. You know what I mean of pro wrestling? It's this, it's its own entire medium. It's its own entire genre. I, I mean, really, there are multiple genres within the medium. So it's a big, weird thing, and we wanted to talk about it and explain it. So that's what we do. It's a bi-weekly podcast. Megan Bob is a delightful individual. They bring so much to the to the recording. I, you know, I bring... Uh, the experience, knowledge of wrestling. Megan Bob uh, brings their fanfic, their love of romance, their desire to f- for all of these characters to be kissing at all times. <laughs> um, we love like reading queer subtext to things. We love talking about various political elements. I'm sure we have brought up prisons at some point. <laughs> like it's, it's that kind of show where we do really get into like the leftist politics and and the 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 right wing politics of wrestling uh, when they come up. But the biggest thing is that we get into what's great about it and and how to experience it. And you know, so for for anybody who has always wanted to give it a shot but finds it intimidating. Uh, you know, this is kind of the show for you. So again, it's the next wrestling fan, the NXT wrestling fan. You can find that on any of your your podcast devices and apps. Uh, and we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash NXT wrestling fan. And uh, if you want to uh, know what you get for being a patron of ours, you can go to that website or listen to an episode. We talk about it a lot in the uh, in the outros that we do. Let's see, beyond that, um, I'm also a member, uh, I'm a co-host on the Unspoiled Podcast Network. That is the podcast network created and hosted by Natasha Winters, where she and various hosts go over books, movies, TV shows, episode by episode, chapter by chapter, and talk about them. And uh, there's always one host who is spoiled and one host who is not. And then uh, beyond that, I guess, you know, occasionally, if you know, I'm a former member of the now defunct Smash Fiction podcast. If you if your kids are out of the room and and you want a little bit of podcasting after dark, you can check out the more recent things that have been coming out on the Smash Fiction podcast feed. Speaking of Megan Bob, their pet project over on that feed has been the Hard Choices series. So uh, I will say no more about that in this particular uh, medium. There is no way to explain hard choices without going X-rated. There just is not. <laughs> there isn't. There isn't. There's only, you have to use a word to describe it, and it's a word I can't say. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that there. But also, you know, if you want to go back into the backlog of Smash Fiction, uh, still up, and it's super fun. We have four and a half years of who would win in the fight matches that are incredibly ridiculous and silly. We did a wonderful uh, MCU rankings episode with with rick and and with some others so that was really great and then uh i'm also a writer over on looper so if you ever uh, are on the the looper website um you can probably usually like once or twice a week there's going to be an article from me up on looper as we record this my most recent article is the untold truth of pizza the hut which is possibly the dumbest thing i've ever written in my life (laughs) it's really really stupid i can't believe they asked me to write an article about pizza, the hut, but they did. And I did, and it turned out a certain way and I like it and they published it. So (laughs) if you want to go read that, I know what I'm going to read tonight. All right. Yeah. I'm everywhere. Y'all you can Google me. You can go go to my website, mjschneiderman.com or find me on Twitter at mjschneiderman. And I'm sure you'll be able to find links to everything, all the myriad things that I do. Well, if you have any time, after checking out all of his shows, you can always check out all of the other shows that we do here. You can find me on 
my Twitter feed at mmuckabout or on my other podcast. Yeah, I've got another podcast. There's still room in the universe after all of his podcast for that's one right. of mine. That's right. And that's Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff, who has been called the hardest screw that ever walked a turn on a podcast. <laughs> if you would like to... <laughs> If you would like to be on this show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick Presents, all one word at gmail.com. And thank you very much to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this wonderful attic of their headquarters to broadcast my show from. And it's even better now that they finally got the roof tarred. I'm very happy about That's that. That's awesome. It's really awesome. One one of their people was on that MCU rankings episode with us too. That's right. That's right. That was uh that would be Jason Albrick. I would also like to thank the Longbox Crusade members for their help supporting the network. If you would like to support this network, head on over to Patreon and search for the Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have for you this week. Grab some popcorn, pull up a seat. We'll be back real soon with another episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at joseflin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9. 